There we go. I think I hear something there. That's good. Um, let me just get set up here. I remember whenever I was a student, I used to come to um, these different uh, meetings, but kind of part of me didn't want to come. I don't know if any of you are here tonight. I know the Scots don't really raise their hands or you know give any amens or anything, but uh, for, for, uh, for me, whenever um, I was um, in university, I was coming along to these things, I was kind of fearful because I was thinking, you know, I don't really want to know all of that stuff because God might just burden my heart to go there. And that, I don't know if some of you are fearful of that, um, whether that's what God might end up doing in your life, but I find that um, fear uh, can be um, kind of alleviated by bribery. So we're going to start that way. That's going to take a little bit of the fear out of the way. Now, I've got a couple of questions for you, and we'll see what you know. Um, but out of the 6,900 languages in the world, how many have a complete Bible in their translation? Now, Scots like to get something for free. You're like the Irish. Did you know that? That the copper wire was made by an Irishman and a Scotsman fighting over a two-penny? And anyway, something for free, okay? Um, something for free. Anybody know how many, give me a percentage, um, have a complete Bible in their own language? What percentage of the world? Was that a hand? No? Even a rough guess. 52%. 52%. 32. Need to go a wee bit lower. How many have a complete Bible? 26. Oh, keep going down. Keep going down. We bit lower. Who said five? Five percent. This belongs to you. Okay. Um, there's a free video. I hope there's a DVD in there. If there's not, come and see me afterwards. Isn't that crazy? Five percent of people. Peoples in the world, sorry, not people, 5% of people's distinct languages have a complete Bible in their language today. Okay, second question, and this is uh, another one here. Um, how many have um, no Bible in their language at all? Okay, so what you do have is you do have um, some who do not have the complete Bible, the vast majority. Um, you have some then who have portions of the Bible, but um, how many have no Bible in their language at all? So some have the New Testament, okay? Some have the New Testament. Um, some have portions of Scripture. We're not even talking about those ones, um, but we're talking about those who have no Bible whatsoever. What percentage? I think a bigger number, way past five. Keep going above 50. This is a really good video. Very close, very close. It's going to be hard work throwing it up to the balcony, but very close. Anyone else? We bit lower? No, higher. 60 something or other, what? Oh, so close with the eight. 67%. Okay, so 67%. This is the dilemma that we're facing. These are maybe things, I don't know if you're aware of them or not, but 67% um, who have... Um, no Bible whatsoever um, in their language. And those figures are taken a couple of years back, um, but uh, that kind of sets us off on where we're going to go. Now, if you have a Bible with you, please get it open and uh, take a look at it, or you have your, your phone or your app or whatever you have with you, um, just uh, get it open. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter um, 15. Okay, Romans chapter 15. Now, our title for tonight is Revealing God Where There Is No Church. Um, that's what we're talking about. First of all, we're going to look at um, the ambition 
Um, the ambition of the gospel. If we can move our slide on a little bit there. Um, we're going to be looking at the ambition uh, of the gospel first of all. But before we do that, um, let's just um, pray together. Ask God to help us. God, we just thank you that we can even come into your presence. Uh, you are so far removed from us. You dwell in inapproachable light, yet we have been brought near by the blood of Christ, and we've been singing about that. We rejoice in that. Um, we thank you for that. Uh, we pray, as we've sang as well, that you would have your way in our lives. We pray for our world. Uh, we pray for the town of Hamilton. And uh, we pray that your people would be so on fire that your gospel would cover both to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if we keep on going through the slide there, uh, what we're looking at tonight um, is really what Paul is talking about here um, in chapter 15. Now, I don't know how much you know um, about the book of Romans or if you've went through it all. I know Ross is going through it with a few guys, um, maybe at the moment as well. If you bring up those first three points just up on the board, that would be great and a help. Um, so, Whenever you have here Romans chapter 15, it has the backdrop of Romans itself. Now remember that Romans chapter 1 to 3 has told us that people are lost. Everyone, the Gentile, the Jew, there's absolutely no hope whatsoever. And we need something else. We have broken God's law and we are guilty before him. Romans chapter 4 comes in with a beautiful chapter um, on justification. If you want to get excited about the gospel again, I mean, read um, chapter 4. Nothing that we have done. And he goes back to Abraham and he explains how we can be justified apart from works, justified apart from our performance, justified simply by believing God. And that's tremendous good news. Uh, he goes on and starts to tell us then about the position that we have as believers, and he starts to unpack then from chapter 6 through to chapter, the end of chapter 8, um, this just great story of what it means then to move in the power of God, to be indwelt by the Spirit of God, and to no longer be moving in our own strength, um, but be moving in this new position he's given us as sons, empowered by his Spirit. And then he says we can change the world. Romans 9 to 11 um, is kind of a jump out section there where he deals with some other things. But now, as he's talking and has already set the context, he's speaking to those um, who are believers and he's speaking to those, I believe, who are walking by the Spirit. And notice in Romans that when he gets to chapter 15, only then does he start to tell us, really, here's the way I want you to walk. Okay, and so this enters under um, that whole deal um, in there. Paul is explaining to the Romans, this is how I want you to walk. This is the manner of people that you want to be in. In Romans chapter 15, um, he talks up through some principles here that you can see up on the overhead, and then he gives his own personal testimony, and we're going to be speaking about his ambitions. Um, but if you just look as you're going through there, um, verses 1 and 3, he's already set the context and said, don't live to please yourself. Okay, you can see that. And we who are strong have an ambition to bear with the feelings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Verse 3, for Christ did not please himself. And so these are things that he's already assuming we understand and we're moving in. God does not want us to be people who live to please ourselves. Now, what does our culture tell us? Live to please yourself. This is counter-cultural, and we need to maybe take our thinking back and change our own ambitions more to what God has for us. 
glorify God together, verses 5 um, to 6. You can see that in there as well. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify God um, and the Father in God's work. There is a togetherness and a unity that is required. It's hard work. It is hard work. We're all a bunch of sinners trying to work together and travel in the same direction, but that's what God wants for us, and he assumes this um, as well. We should be servants of the gospel, and he uses the illustration of Christ in verses um, 8 to 9. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show the truth, uh, truthfulness in order to confirm the promises to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles may glorify God, confirming the promises to the Jewish fathers. Okay, that's who he's speaking about there. Confirming the promises that were already made of coming Messiah. But then also to confirm here um, in order that the Gentiles may, might glorify God. And then he has this section in here from um, verse 9 down to verse 13. And you can read it there. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Praise the Lord, you Gentiles. Let all peoples extol him. The root of Jesse um, will come, even he who raises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles have hope. And he unfolds a little bit and sets in context there what he's about to talk about. That from the very beginning, God's plan of salvation and redemption from the fall was all about the whole world, not just the Jews receiving the gospel. And so he's building this. And he's explaining these things um, to them again. He says in verse 13, again about God's eternal plan, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. There has only ever been one strategy, verses 16 to 19, for the redemption of man. He says he wants to be a minister um, of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of, God, of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work um, for God. And verse 18 is key. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished. Christ and his work has always been the message. That has always been behind the strategy of whatever we're doing to see people reach with the gospel. Um, it's about Christ. So knowing these things now, okay, assuming here as Paul is assuming and has built it through, we understand what it means to walk by the Spirit of God. He's telling and has unfolded the eternal plan of the revelation to the Gentiles. That's us, by the way, okay? Um, we are not God's chosen people, but that was for us right from the very beginning. And God had that plan um, all along. But he tells us here, as people who do not seek to please ourselves, as people who work together, then seek to be a servant in order that we can finish what was God's plan all along. So that's the general context of what he's talking about. And Paul here then starts to talk about um, his own ambition. We can flick on again, please. Starts to talk about um, his own um, ambition. The first thing I want to say about his gospel ambition is this, that without gospel ambition and the gospel ambition that Paul had sweeping the church again, we are not going to reveal God where the church is not. We need the gospel ambition that Paul had um, to come back and we're going to define that um, a little bit more um, for us. But I trust you are those, are amongst those who want to see God revealed throughout the world. Now look at what he says here um, in these verses. Let's just read them together. He says from verse um, 20, And thus 
I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. And you see he's saying, and thus, he's referring back to what he's just said. This is God's plan all along. And so this is my ambition as well, to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard um, will understand. Okay, Paul's um, ambition. What I want to say, first of all, is that Paul's ambition was also built upon what he believed. I don't know, I, I love some of the statements that Paul's ma- Paul makes, but Paul believed that the gospel was most important. The greatest message that could ever be told. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He believed that. Acts 26, um, verse 22, he says again that he would say nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer, and that by being first, that by being that he was first to raise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both, to both to our peoples and to the Gentiles. This was of the first importance, and Paul was gripped by this. He believed that the gospel was essential for everyone to hear. Um, number two, Paul believed that Jesus was the most important man that ever lived. Philippians is a book that I love, chapter 1, verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. And if you know um, Philippians chapter 1, Paul was in prison, and he was under threat of death. And there were those without the church who were persecuting him. But listen, there were those within the church who were giving it him in the neck. And he's saying, listen, I don't care what they're doing. As long as Christ is magnified, that's all that matters. And by my imprisonment, he's being magnified. And his testimony is going throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. Paul believed um, that Jesus was the most important man that ever lived. Chapter 1 and 21 of Philippians as well. For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. If only I can see him. Not even to mention chapter 3. I just want to know him. To know him. To know him. He repeats time and time again. And Paul's ambition was based on what he believed. This ambition to take the gospel was based on what he believed. And Paul's ambition directed his steps. I don't know if you can see that in chapter 22. Or sorry, verse 22 and verse 23. Um, He says, verse 22, This is the reason... Why I've been so often hindered from coming to you. He says, I've been hindered from coming to you. He wanted to go and visit the the believers in Rome. And he says here, but now since I have no longer any room in these regions, um, and since I have longed for many years. This was something that Paul was longing to do. Go and visit these people. And he was hindered. And what he puts it in the context of saying is, I've been busy proclaiming the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum. But now that's finished. Now I've got space to come. And so the importance of the gospel and the work that was entrusted to Paul um, dictated and directed um, his steps as well. What we believe should shape our lives. Our convictions should shape our goals. Change our conduct. Refocus our resources perhaps completely change the trajectory of our lives. 
The question for you is, what is it that you believe? What ambitions do you have when you sit and dream on your bed at night about what life is going to be like? What do you dream of? What ambitions do you have? Where do you see your life um, going? Paul wanted to visit this church, but he wasn't able to do that. He was under God's control and under these ambitions. Is the course of your life being set by what you believe about God, the gospel, and how he has gifted you? If not, you need to ask the question, why not? Why not? Do we not and have we not already sang about the gospel and about Christ and how dear he is to us? How precious he is to us? All of us, I think, would say that who know Christ. And would agree with Paul This is the most important message that there is. Does that shape our lives? Has it changed anything of our ambitions to his ambitions? Now, Paul believed certain things, as we've said already. These things um, shaped his ambition. And we've asked you what you believe. Um, Turn over to 1 um, Philippians Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27 um, just for a second. I want to show you something about belief. Um, that's particularly important. And you might have seen this, um, you might have seen this illustration before, but Philippians chapter 1 and verse um, 27 here. He doesn't say, listen, only believe worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, listen, only think worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does he say? Let your manner of life There is a big difference between thinking something and allowing it to change your life. There's a big difference between saying you believe something and seeing it change the manner of your life. Now, to illustrate that, we're probably going to have to ask our uh, translator here just to move uh, for a second. By way of illustrating that, let's just um, have a a look at this. Now, probably this doesn't happen too often um, in your circles. I... Whenever we teach, we have to use a lot of illustrations, okay? So this is um, one that I like to do. Let's just move it down here and put it there. That'll do. Okay, so what I have in here, now don't get too alarmed, okay? I have a a little gun here. It's just a pellet gun, all right? It's not that. Everybody's like, oh my goodness, who did you bring to speak here, okay? That's all right. Okay, let's see this um, for a second. Now... Don't worry, the safety's on, I think. It's all right. Okay, let me just get it ready. Now, here's the question for you. Who believes that I can shoot the balloon? Hands up. Now, we're going to, I know we don't put our hands up too often in church, but we need this for the illustration, okay? Who believes I can shoot the balloon? You don't believe I can shoot the balloon? What's going on? You do? I'm going to get a little bit offended here, okay? So have we got anybody raise their hand that thinks I can't shoot the balloon from this distance? Anybody? Nobody. 100% of people. Okay, that's perfect. You might want to just slip up to the side there. No, I'm only joking. Not that bad. Okay, let's see if we can do it. It's not that far away. Okay, bingo. We clap. There we go. That's fantastic. Okay, that's not too far away. All right? Now, the question is, what do you believe? 
Who believes I can shoot the pink balloon? It's a different color, slightly different size. Is there anybody, let's do it the other way because you don't like raising your hands. Is there anybody, and I can understand that, we're good Baptists, okay? Is there anybody that doesn't believe I can't shoot the balloon? Anyone? No, not easy. Okay, same distance. Same distance, okay? Raise your hand if you believe I could shoot the balloon out of your mouth. You want to come up? One. Okay. Ross, have you got that disclaimer we talked about? In the back? You're right. <laughs> okay. So, no, go on down. Go on down. No, we're not going to do that. I can see the pastor thinking, oh my goodness. Okay, but the balloon can be shot again, okay? But this is set to illustrate one and one thing only. Whenever I asked, do you believe I can shoot the balloon out of your mouth? Nothing changed. The balloon is the same size. The distance is the same size. You're going to stand right over there. Only two people put up their hands. Only two. My question to you is, did you really believe? Did you believe when it really meant something for you? Did you believe when there was any risk? Even though before you were 100% confident that I could shoot the balloon. You see, belief is not just about mental assent. Belief is not just about saying, this is what I believe when I say Jesus Christ is the most important person in the world and people need to hear about him. Something needs to change so that our manner of life will be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the challenge that we need to come back to is 100% that we need to get to walking worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our ambition needs to be the same as Paul's. He was not a man who said, I believe this and not acting upon it. He followed through. Now, that wasn't Paul. If you read Romans and understand what he's saying in chapter 8, that was the power of God. We sang about it before. How did it say it in the song? The power that rolled away the stone. What was it? Anybody know? In the group, the power that rolled away the stone is in us. Something to that effect. We sing that. We believe that. That power is available to us. But does it direct our ambition? Does that change the trajectory of our life? What do you and I um, believe? Now, you might be saying, Simon, listen, hold on a second. You're way off base here. Don't you know that Paul was commissioned to the Gentiles, there was a special revelation on the Damascus Road. Well, of course I know that. Of course I know that. But listen here, you and I have also been commissioned. Now, you know where the Great Commission is. Um, right there in the book of Matthew chapter 28. You know where it is uh, as well. Where Paul was commissioned in Acts chapter 26. Told specifically what he was to do and how he was to suffer. But Matthew 28, And Jesus came upon them and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and you know the rest. Acts 1, 7-8, And he replied, The Father alone is the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
Now, maybe that doesn't convince you enough. Lastly, look in your passage. Where does Paul go to? Turn back to Romans chapter 15. Where does Paul go to? To validate his ambition. He doesn't go back to the Damascus Road experience. You might think he does. He's speaking personally here. But set in the context of this being God's plan from the beginning. He goes not to there, but he goes to Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 15. And he quotes God's eternal purpose for the world that those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. And this should be something that either, and it can do both, it can terrify you and it can excite you because this is something that we are to be involved in. This ambition of the gospel of which Paul said before that he makes it his ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named lest he build on another man's foundation. This ambition is to be ours as well. It is to be owned by the church. And we really need to be doing a better job than what we're doing. The church globally needs to be doing a better job than what it's doing. Perhaps it's because we have lost this perspective of Paul's on this ambition um, that he had. What are you believing? Is it shaping your dreams? Onto the next slide there. So remember, firstly, that we see God, to see God revealed where there is no church, um, we need gospel ambition. Secondly, we need to follow God's church planting strategy, and we're going to be able to move a little bit quicker now. But um, look at verse 19 to 23, 19 and 23, and we'll just read those um, separately. By power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, listen carefully now, this may be a little bit controversial, but we have to come to conclusion on what he's saying about these verses. He says, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around, around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel. Doesn't that jump out at you a little bit from the passage? Here we are, somewhere between 50 to maybe 63 years after Christ has ascended. And he is saying, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum. In fact, he goes on further in verse 23, and he says, I have no room for work. Now, what does Paul mean? What does he mean? None of us would say that there weren't people who needed to hear the gospel. But I believe Paul is making a big distinction on to um, the next, some of the maps there, guys, please, if you can bring those up. Okay, so this area that you can see up here is the area that he's talking about. From Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. And Illyricum was a massive region. Okay, and there was regions in between there as well. These are the regions that would have been between you. have Palestine, Syria, Turkey, or Asia Minor, Greece, and then all the way up there into Albania as well are areas where Paul planted churches. And this is the area from Jer Jerusalem around to um, Illyricum that he's talking about here. Now, these are big areas um, of land uh, that he's mentioning. It's important to note, just before we go a little bit deeper into this, that Paul's New Testament strategy was to go to the largest towns, was to go to the synagogue, was to proclaim the gospel that Jesus was Messiah, to gather believers then, or if he was thrown out, go and preach to whoever else would listen, gather believers stay a while, teach, train, appoint elders, and then leave again. That was the pattern, okay? So just get that into your mind. Titus 1 and 5, he says, um, this is why I left you in Crete, 
so that you may put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Um, in Acts chapter 14 and 23, he says the same thing. But this is a massive area. And if you were to take the square miles of this area here, it's about 438,000 um, square miles. It's a massive um, area. For some perspective, the UK is only 93,000 square miles. All right, and we have 30, 37,501 churches that are loosely evangelical. Okay, that's quite a lot of churches. Now, here as well, if you go on to the next slide, if you were to drive, for some perspective, as well, next one, if you were to drive, and this apparently is the fastest route according to Google Maps. Now, we know Google Maps gets it wrong sometimes, but they're saying if you drove from Jerusalem all the way through to Zagreb um, there, which is as close as I can figure it, would have been maybe where one of the churches was planted that Paul did, um, it would take you 72 hours solid driving, not breaking the speed limit, Ross. Okay? So it would take you that amount of time. We're talking about um, a big area here. Now, the book of Romans, it's mostly agreed, was written around AD 56. Sorry to get a little bit, you know, kind of technical on you here, but book of Romans written around AD 56. So this is what he's saying. At this time in these regions, I have no room to work, and I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel. And if you do a survey of the book of Acts, um, which I did here, and then got some help on maps uh, as well, if you can go on to the next map, please, um, you can see that there are 34 churches, 34 churches, you hear that number again? 34 churches planted, and if you want all the lists of um, where these churches are listed, okay, here, mostly in the book of Acts, um, but also um, in Titus and Romans and a few others, also in Revelation, you can see where they were located, and of course, they followed his missionary journeys. But this is what he is talking about. So Acts was written after uh, this was completed, and he's saying here, listen, I have completed the ministry of the gospel. What does he mean? Now, it will be no stretch to say that there would have been thousands and thousands, if not hundreds of thousands in these regions who needed to hear the gospel. They hadn't heard of Jesus. I would completely agree with that. So Paul doesn't mean by I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel that there's no work left to be done. He doesn't mean that no one else needs to hear the gospel. Now, we know that as well. If you click on, um, there should be a yellow button come up there. He says um, to Timothy, in, who was in Ephesus at that time, right there on the map, right where uh, that region is located, he says, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist. That still needed um, to happen. There are still people here who need to hear um, the gospel. Now, when you put all of these things together, for me, Paul's work of the pioneering work of the gospel was complete. And he was handing the work over to these local churches to complete the work of the gospel. As far as I could see, that's the only conclusion that we can come to. Because he says very clearly, I have completed the work or the ministry of the gospel. I have no more room for work, but I believe he's handing over to these local churches and he makes a distinction between the pioneering work of the gospel amongst those who have never heard and the ever as important evangelical work of the church to propagate the gospel and to plant churches in their regions. And we know that pattern has happened from church history as well. 
But listen, the church has always been God's vehicle for revealing God. Is that not true? That's God's plan for the church to reveal God. The church matters, Ephesians 5.25 to God. Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. He said, I will build my church. God has given the church, Ephesians 4.11 to 13, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, so that we can mature in order that we may display Christ to the world, both individually and corporately. Christ is the head of the church, Ephesians 1. Ephesians 3, now this is not necessarily to man, you can go look at the passage, but still it's there, that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be known, and he speaks particularly of the angels and other powers there, but there is a ministry of the church which is about making him known. Now we are also to be the visual representation of Christ, and we can't get into this one, but one Colossians, or in Colossians chapter 1, um, verse 24. We are to display the sufferings of Christ. We are 2 Corinthians 3, 6, ministers of the new covenant. We are given the ministry of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21. This has all been given to the church. Now, there's no other plan. God is and has given the church so that the world might know um, Christ. I'm convinced that God wants us as his church to commission individuals, teams, to go to the regions beyond, to the Spain still of this world. Remember, Paul says later on here, I'm going to Spain, because at that time the gospel hadn't reached Spain. He's saying, listen, my work is done. I may be able to visit you on the way through, but I'm going to Spain, because I've got this ambition of the gospel to preach amongst those who have never heard. Paul was not a local, a local evangelist. He was a pioneering church planter. And he spent his life doing that. But I believe we need to be careful today, and we'll see a little bit later why that is as the church, that we don't fudge the lines. Sometimes we use a term which is made by the church, everyone's a missionary. And I completely understand the sentiment, but we do an injustice of taking away the focus of the work of the local church and the work amongst those areas where there is no church. I believe God has a plan um, for both, which is vitally um, important. Paul's pioneering work um, of the ministry of the gospel was complete from Jerusalem to Illyricum. He had no more room for work, but the work of the local church was just beginning. In maturing, in discipleship, in local church planting, in acts of mercy, and in evangelism. And Paul was moving on. But in God's word, we see a distinction. Terminology is not so important, but the distinction is. Because I believe to a great extent, we have lost the ambition of the gospel to preach where Christ has not been named. There are frontier evangelists who should be sent and supported by local churches. They should be sent to places where Christ has not been named. They cross cultures, they learn languages, they translate the Bible, they disciple, they train, they appoint leaders, they hand over the work and they leave that work to the local church. This was Paul's ambition. The Great Commission is still valid and there are whole regions, nations where Christ has not been named. Now, there are those as well, some of our 
wonderful brothers and sisters here um, from other mission organizations, and they work with local churches where those local churches are still immature. Um, they work in regions and do acts of service where the church is not able to do that, and that is super vital for us also to be doing that. But I believe there's a, an imbalance, and we'll look a little bit more about that just now as we go. We should see this situation, and we should say millions have not heard of Jesus. If Jesus has ransomed men from every tribe and tongue and people, which we know he has, if we remember that all authority has been given to us, if he has commanded us to make disciples, if he's promised to be with us to the end of the age and the end of the age isn't here, then we should be saying we're not going to rest until this is done. Because the gospel is the most important message in the world. Because Jesus Christ is the most important person who ever stepped foot on earth. And because he's asked us to be involved. Paul was always pushing out. Now, where is our Spain? And we're going to finish with this. How am I doing for time, Ross? Okay, he's giving me a thumbs up. That's all right. Where is our Spain? Okay, you'll see here um, that Paul says, verse 24. Let's read verse 23. But now, since I no longer have room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped there by you. And later on, he even goes on to talk about and linking together the work of the local church with him, who's a pioneering missionary. Still has to be rooted in the local church, um, the work of pioneering missionary. And he talks um, later here, Um, that they would strive with him in order to see this work done in their prayers and in their giving. Amazing things. But where is our Spain? Let's um, take a little bit of a look at this. Um, If we can go on to the the next slide there, please, guys. Well, our Spain, I would suggest to you, is any nation. We call them unreached people groups. Let me define that for you. An unreached people group is a people group where there would generally be, and if you go to any of the resources, Joshua Project, Um, If you go to Operation World, it's defined as those who have less than 2% Christian in them. And what that basically means is they don't have mature churches. They don't have enough people to be able to reach their own people. Now, if you wind that back, there's even another group who are completely unreached, who have zero missionaries working amongst them. And as far as we know, zero churches planted amongst them. And we desperately need to get the message um, to these folks. How many? How many would that be? I would suggest to you that we're looking at a figure around about the 4 billion mark. Now you might be wondering, why are you saying that? Okay, why are you saying that? If you go to Joshua Project, you'll see it says about 3 billion. Uh, If you go to... uh, travelingcompany.org they're also another organization that brings these stats up they say about the same thing and Operation World says about the same thing if you look at their definition for what a Christian is and I'm not putting them completely down they do a great job in helping us to see the needs of the unreached world but they admittedly say it's very hard for us to gather this data And they say, our information is based upon this definition of a Christian. And here it is. It's right off their website. It's a Christian adherent or professing Christian. One who professes to follow, to be a follower of Christ or a Christian religion in any form. 
The definition is based upon an individual's confession, not on their ecclesiology, theology, or religious commitment or experience. This includes professing and affiliated adults, also their children, whether they are practicing or not practicing in church, who reside in any given country, who are of any particular ethno-linguistic or ethno-cultural people. Listen carefully to this bit. This is the broadest possible classification of Christian. It includes six ecclesiological types, Protestant, Roman Catholic, other Catholic, Orthodox, foreign marginal, indigenous marginal, as defined in Operation World. Professing Christians can also include the evangelical subset. So what they're saying is not that these are evangelical Christians, but this is the broadest possible term of Christian. For example, our own tribe, which I've lived in, worked in for 10 years, and went to pretty much every village that there is, is classed by Operation World as 97% Christian. Now, I can tell you that it's not. (laughs) The Roman Catholics are there. Their religion has been syncretized with the animistic beliefs. Our people worship the spirits of their dead ancestors, but they have communion once a month in a little hut, and they're classed as Christian. And I feel a responsibility to talk about this and get this information out. There is a lot of people in our world who are unreached with the gospel of Christ. And it's the church's responsibility. In Africa, 338 million. Now, these are from Joshua Project under their definition, but we'll we'll go with this. It's the best figures we have. In Africa, 338,614,000. India, 1,217,000,000. Okay, unreached with the gospel. China, 187 million. South America, this is where it gets a little bit sketchy. In South America, there are many indigenous people, tribal people. Um, 617,000, they say, are the only number of unreached in South America. If you go to the Roman Catholic website and you look there at Um, The numbers of their congregation in South America, it is over 7 million people um, who are adherent to that in that country. Not believers, by what we would understand to be a believer. And many of them are finding themselves in extremely remote and indigenous scenarios where they also syncretize, they mix what they know about Roman Catholicism with animistic beliefs. That's what the animus does. We don't have time to get into that. That amounts to more than possibly 4 billion people in our world. Most of the unreached um, people groups are in, located in what is called the 1040 window. Now, on our map here that you can see um, up at the top, this is um, roughly where Christians are located in the world. Sorry, girls, you're getting a workout tonight. Where Christians are located in the world. Okay, so you can see a lot in North America. They're saying lots in South America. These are also taken from... Um, It's not Joshua Project who produces these, but um, they base off of their figures. So the vast majority at least know that there are 7 million, in those blue dots in South America, there are 7 million who are Roman Catholic. Okay? Right across that 1040 window, you see that area across North America, across to Asia, that doesn't have any blue dots in it? That's where most of the unreached peoples of the world are located. Okay? Okay, next slide, please. Next map um, there for us. Now, 
what you can see here is, again, the, the flip side of that. This is where non-Christian populations reside. Okay? I would dispute that there should be a lot more in South America and a lot more in Northern Africa as well. Okay? But this gives you the idea. Look at where the clusters are. Right there in Asia, right across that 1040 window. Could you flip up as well the next map to show us where we deploy our missionaries as the evangelical world? Can you flip back quickly between the two maps? Look at that. That's all the non-Christians in the world, unreached people. That's where our missionaries are. One more time. So what I am suggesting to you by seeing this, now these figures are taken in 2007. This is where the evangelical church deploys their missionaries. The least amount of missionaries that we have full-time are working amongst unreached peoples. This is why I'm saying to you, I think we've lost some of the specific ambition of the gospel that Paul had right here. Let me illustrate it for you um, a little bit more. Here we have, let me throw this up here for you. Hopefully this doesn't slip off, Miriam, as you predicted. Okay, just to give you a visual, because I'm a, I'm a very visual person, so this kind of works um, for me. Okay, so um, these are gum, they're, well, they're not gumballs. I tried to get gumballs, couldn't get them. These are paintballs, okay? Um, what you have here is each one of these represents, if you can get your mind around this, one million people. Right here. One million people. Okay, this is China. This is the number of unreached in China. 187 million. Okay, just so you know, there's more than 40,000 gumballs up here. We're going to get there. All right? Um, here we have Africa. And this is according to the most narrow figures, as I've explained them to you um, already. Okay? The most narrow figures that we've got. Um, here we have India. Each one, as I said, representing a million people. Unreached, no access to the gospel, no missionaries working amongst them um, actively um, at the moment. What we have here is the rest of Asia, because we didn't have time to group everything else together. Okay, this is the rest of Asia. sure if I can set one up there. This is the rest of Asia, folks. Unreached people. Now, we have roughly, at the moment, around and about 13,600 missionaries who are working amongst unreached peoples. That's roughly what we have. Now, remember the ambition of the gospel. Remember the strategy um, of the gospel. If we even took, let's say we said that for these folks, the 13,000 that are working amongst the unreached, those missionaries, if they operated in evangelism, now I remember the distinction between evangelism and church planting. Evangelism is sharing the gospel. Okay, it also incorporates church planting, but we're making a, a big distinction. Evangelism, where you share the gospel. Let's say you could go there and you could share the gospel 
And every day, each one of those 13,000 people would reach one person clearly with the gospel of Christ and see them saved. In one year, it's a pretty good figure. Five million people. Five million people saved every year with evangelism. That's a pretty good number. That's a number we would all celebrate, isn't it? That's, I don't think, God's plan. God wants more for these ones who are simply have heard the gospel. He wants a lot more than that for them. Whenever you take births over deaths, when you take births over deaths of these four billion people, they increase by, and even if we were to take another five billion for the next year, there's 10 billion in two years. In one year, they have 106 million added to that total, births over deaths. So we are not increasing, we are going back. We're going back. And Paul says we need to get this ambition of the gospel back. Don't know where I got this quote from, but it says, Most men are not satisfied with the permanent output of their lives. Nothing can wholly satisfy the life of Christ within his followers except the adoption of Christ's purpose towards the world he came to redeem. Fame, pleasure, riches are but husks and ashes in contrast with the boundless and abiding joy of working with God for the fulfillment of his eternal plans. The men who are putting everything into Christ's undertaking are getting out of life its sweetest and most priceless rewards. I pray that you will be folks who are involved in pioneering evangelism or else you are evangelists right here where you are. The ambition of the gospel, we need to get it back. Let's pray that we can and then we'll hand over to Andrew. Lord, we just want to ask you that you would help us and challenge us. We admit to you that the gospel is so important but we pray that our lives uh, would be transformed by godly ambitions and that we would walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.